2: I'm gonna be totally honest, I've been feeling pretty down about climate change lately. It kind of felt like the Glasgow summit fizzled. There was the news that a key ice shelf in Antarctica is melting faster than expected. Then there were the awful tornadoes over the weekend. So when I read Clive Thompson's story about a potential solution to climate change, or at least some technology that might be helpful, I was immediately hooked. Clive's story, which ran in Mother Jones, is about something called direct air carbon capture, or DAC.
1: Direct air carbon capture is basically the art and science of extracting CO2 from the air.
2: Think of a giant vacuum, but for carbon.
1: You create a machine that uses a chemical process to bind CO2 and turn it into something that you can then store somewhere. Maybe you shove it really deep in the ground so it's gone. Maybe you turn it into something else that you can use.
2: On its face, the idea seems kind of ridiculous. Sucking carbon out of the air sounds like a desperate plot point from an exhausted sci-fi writer. But it's actually something that the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change wants humans to think about. In their 2018 report, the IPCC said, So far, our efforts just to lower carbon emissions aren't enough.
1: The IPCC said, we are going to need to remove carbon from from the atmosphere. And we're going to need to remove an awful lot of it from the atmosphere. That really lit the fire. That was the gun going off at the beginning of the race.
2: Today on the show, the race to suck carbon out of the air. The technology exists, but to do it well requires money, will, and what environmentalists consider a deal with the devil. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval.
0: Terms apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.
2: Carbon dioxide absorbs and traps heat, making it the key culprit in global warming. The idea of removing it from the air at any kind of scale requires both money and political cooperation. But even before that, it requires technology. Scientists and companies are trying a couple of different approaches, all of which involve getting the carbon to stick to an absorbent substance called a sorbent, like a chemical sponge.
1: So at the high end you have a company like Carbon Engineering, which is up in, um, in Canada. And the way it works is that they have like a, a big machine that's like the size of a building. And it's got a huge fan on top of it. And it's sucking air in. Like, and this is a great big fan, you know, like six, 10 feet across. And it's blowing all that air down into a great big pool of, of a liquid sorbent. And it's reacting, and it's sucking up all the CO2 and holding it there. And then once that's got lots of CO2 in that sorbent, then they use uh, a process that needs to go to very, very high temperatures, hundreds and hundreds of degrees, but it turns it into the CO2 that you can sort of store you know, in a, in a pressurized gas. It uses a big process to capture a lot of it. But the downside is that it needs a lot of energy to run that machine. You have to burn natural gas, you know, to create that heat, or you have to have a really a ton of clean energy from windmills and a solar farm. That's, that's one model. What's the other model? The other model is to have much smaller machines that you could kind of tuck anywhere that use a lot less energy, which is great, but they also don't suck quite as much CO2 out of the air.
2: Basically, picture a machine the size of a furnace that you could have at just about any industrial site. Then there's an even smaller device, the brainchild of Professor Klaus Lochner. Clive went to Lochner's lab in Arizona to see how the idea works. And quick disclosure here, Lochner works at Arizona State, which is a partner in Slate's Future Tense project.
1: And it's interesting because it is entirely um, passive. Klaus Lochner said, you know, I I want this thing to run on almost no energy. So I'm just going to create like a tree of these disks that stands like, you know, 30 feet high. And the wind just blows, <laughs> you know, air past it. And and that reacts with, you know, the sorbent inside these disks. And then once every hour or so, when the disks are full of CO2, it sort of collapses down almost like an umbrella kind of, and squeezes it out with a little bit of heat. They're so low energy that, you know, he imagines you might need tens of millions of them. But you could put them literally anywhere. If
2: any one of these approaches works and can be massively scaled up, it's possible to imagine a future where humans are actively removing carbon from the atmosphere. Direct air capture is this thing that sounds very sci-fi. When we're thinking about it in the public policy arena, there seem like there are two big questions. What would it take scientifically? To do this at scale, and what would it take practically and politically?
1: What you'd need to really do this, to be clear, is you'd need like an almost wartime mobilization of resources that you maybe saw like in the Second World War or something like that. And there are lots and lots of choke points. You'd need tons of that sorbent chemical. Right? That's that's a lot of that, that's a lot of that chemical. You'd need to figure out a lot of issues you know, that we can talk about which is where do you put all that carbon? What do you do with that stuff? But, you know, could you, but just on, on the question of could you get it out of the sky, you know, could you do that at scale? Yes, I think you could.
2: On a practical level, even saying there was the global will for this, it seems like there are three big sort of structural hurdles, cost, transportation, and storage. First of all, like how much does it cost to do this?
1: The estimate that I most often heard is that right now, the state of the art, the best they can do, the cheapest they can do, is about $500 per ton of CO2, right? Everyone who sort of looks at this field basically says that that is way too much, that it's way too expensive to be able to to do what we need to do, because the IPCC was talking about removing 10 gigatons a year or thereabouts, which is billions of tons, right? So at uh, you know at, at 500 per ton, you're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars. So yeah. you need to bring that price down a lot. So what price does it need to get to? Um, I mean, no one really knows, but if it were around $100 per ton, then there starts to be like a, a more of a market for this stuff. Like you would now find people who are willing to buy that captured CO2 and do something with it, you would now find governments that are willing to say, okay, we'll, we'll just pay that up front to shove it in the ground. If you got it down to $50 or $10 a ton, then you're really talking, you know, like then it becomes much more affordable for a government to say, okay, let's, let's get rid of, you know, many, many gig- gigatons a year and we'll pay for it.
2: I asked Clive how to think about getting the costs down, and he used the example of microprocessors. The first ones were really pricey and not that great. But after government investment and a lot of tinkering, they're now powerful, cheap, and everywhere. But there's another issue besides cost. And that's how to move the carbon dioxide once you've
1: got it. The real trick, the really hard part, is how do you get it from the place that you collected the CO2, the place that you sucked it out of the sky? How do you get it from there to the place that you're going to shove it into the ground? Because, you know, these machines could be anywhere. You know they could be again they could be in boston they could be in you know out in the desert hmm. in arizona they could be um all over the place and you need to have a pipeline and piping co2 is really not easy because it is a highly pressurized gas if if you if, if you have a leak it's really bad stuff it's it's it really really erupts with high pressure it is a asphyxiating gas so it would it would kill people um, and worse of all, it hangs low to the ground. It's heavier than air if it's in a dense quantity. So we've already had examples of pressurized CO2 um, gas mains breaking and causing really bad problems where they sent, you know, dozens and dozens of people to the hospital and sickened hundreds of people. So that that problem of the piping, I mean, when you say you have trouble understanding it and imagining it, that's for good reason. It's 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 really quite crazy.
2: You're not really selling direct it. <laughs> You're captured in me here.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, and let let me make it a little bit worse by pointing out that like traditionally pipelines get run through indigenous lands. So yeah, am I, am I selling it? I mean, no, I mean, I'm sort of, my goal with the story was to paint a very realistic picture of the enormous opportunity, but the enormous challenge here, right? You know, Uh, um, because I'm not saying it would be impossible to do that. uh, And if it became, you know, sort of like a, we have no other option, then I guess we would bite the bullet and figure it out. Uh, But it's something you'd want to really think hard and plan for if you're going to do it, which is sort of a good reason to think about the problems now.
2: The other level of this story that sort of takes it to another banana's head-scratching place is that it seems, from your reporting, that the only players who could afford to do this, who have a really vested interest in doing this, are big oil companies. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. This is is the issue that really alarms a lot of environmentalists about direct air capture, which is that, you know, nearly all of the, of the projects that I've been telling you about here, um, carbon engineering's, you know, massive plant, global engineering's smaller little machines, they're all being developed, you know, hand in glove with oil and gas companies, fossil fuel companies. And why is that? Well, the people who understand how to build things at scale that have to do with energy and how to how to move gases around are the oil and gas companies. They're, you know, they've got decades of experience in this. So they're the first obvious partners. And some of this has to do with the fact that um, what do you do with that CO2 when you've captured it? Well, we talked about shoving it in the ground to get rid of it. And most of the time when you tell people about carbon. Capture, you know, direct air carbon capture. They're like, yeah, that's a great idea. Like, we'll we'll suck the CO two out of the air and we'll shove it in the ground, so it's gone. Like we're reversing the industrial revolution, right? Everyone loves that. The problem is, is that in the short run, and by the short run I mean like a decade or more, there's really no one who's planning to shove that in the ground. What all of these projects are doing is working with oil and gas companies to do something that creates a market for the reuse of that CO2.
2: There is a market right now for CO2, but it's kind of niche. There's a company in Texas, for example, that uses it to get the last drops of oil and gas out of nearly empty wells. And it's something other companies might adopt. And that brings us back to this question of environmentalists having to work with or rely on oil companies. Are the environmentalists or are some environmentalists able to say, okay, this involves a deal with the devil, but it gets us there? Or is it just like, no, that's a non-starter?
1: Different environmentalists are divided on this. Um, Many of the environmentalists, I would say the majority of them said to me, we think this is a costly distraction. We think that all the money being put into developing direct air capture should just be put into scaling out renewables dramatically right now and you know building battery technology right innovating on that front they're like that is how we decarbonize we do it by just rapidly throwing everything we can at this and we seal the oil and gas companies out of this process because they are just bad news yeah it's fine to develop the technology to keep it in pocket but no way should we use it with these guys because they they argue uh that oil and gas companies just want this tech to exist as sort of a get out of jail free card, right?
2: Because it helps them reduce their net emissions? Yeah,
1: yeah, They could say that, you know, they could start to spin it as well. We're starting to, we're, we're shoving CO2 in the ground. And so we're reducing emissions, yep. but we're not actually ceasing to get new oil and gas out of the ground, right? Like it would become this way of saying, hey, we're net neutral. You know, we're, we're creating lots more emissions by selling lots of oil and gas, but we're also shoving it in the ground, right? They they think that this is – this is, or, or even worse, they think that this is like um, kind of like almost like a fig leaf, right? Like they'll develop this technology a little bit, but never get serious enough about it. Like it'll be just sort of a way of saying, hmm. yeah, yeah, we're, you know, we're working on a tech that's going to save everything. So we can keep on burning all the oil and gas – keep on driving the car the way you are right now. Don't worry, we're going to take care of this. And they won't be serious about it. Almost the way that like, you know – you know, the, the electric vehicle was invented in the 1990s. And then just, you know, and then and then it vanished, right? Because, you know, the car companies were like, we don't want to do that. So there's there's sort of a, this is what's known as the moral hazard argument, right? That like, if you start developing right. a technology, it takes the pressure off of society to decarbonize its energy production. If you think that there is a magic solution coming 10 or 20 years from now, then yeah, maybe it's okay to keep burning oil and gas. Now, maybe we don't need to Aggressively roll out solar and uh, and renewables.
2: When we come back, can the world get it together to cooperate?
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.
2: The thing about direct air capture that is so fascinating is how complicated it is. Not in terms of the tech, but in terms of the moral and ethical equations around
1: it. Among other things, direct air capture would allow for a certain level of environmental and economic justice. Insofar as we're now in a situation where parts of the global south are rapidly trying to expand their economies. And to do that, you need lots and lots of cheap energy right now. Those societies, you know, they want to do what we did, which is to burn lots of oil and gas to get themselves as prosperous as possible, as quickly as possible. So the progressive argument is well, you know, maybe it's up to the the developed countries that, that made this mess, a lot of this mess, to um, to work on direct air capture and clean up the problem for the countries that we you know have kind of trod all over in the last 50 or 100 years. And there's a moral argument to doing it that way.
2: Would, would doing direct air capture on a global scale, I guess, would it be an admission of defeat?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It would be a complete admission of defeat insofar as it would be us saying to ourselves, we couldn't change the way we lived. For decades, we were unwilling to do that. You know, we, we knew in the, in, the, in the 90s that global warming was coming, and we knew that we needed to work on decarbonizing the economy as rapidly as possible and rolling out renewables, and, uh, and we didn't do it. We didn't push for it. You know, and to the extent that a lot of citizens did push hard for it, they faced ferocious opposition. From oil and gas companies, and from many politicians who were absolutely in their pockets, right? And so that—that that is, in fact, yes, an admission of defeat.
2: Where do the oil companies sit on this, in terms of you know, mm-hmm. okay, yes, we'll we'll put our money here, or or do we know?
1: Several people said to me that the one of the reasons why they are um, dubious of the motives of oil and gas companies, dubious that they really, really want to do. Direct air capture at scale is that none of them are really reorienting their spending habits around it, right? Like they've got R&D projects, you know, they'll 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 help out all of these direct air capture companies with their projects. But things only really change when you see what they do with their annual budgets. And with their annual budgets, they're still just drilling for oil. I will say that the way that they actually think that things would really roll out was that the only way that that we're going to get millions and millions of direct air capture machines and make it really cheap is if we don't just grab that CO2 and shove it in the ground but for the next 10 or 20 years we actually turn it back into liquid fuel and burn it again. And when I say to them, you know, that sounds that sounds you know sort of circular like isn't the point to get it out of the out of the air and in the yeah. ground they're like, well, yes, but um think of it this way. They're like what we'd be doing is decarbonizing the internal combustion engine.
2: Hmm. So you're still feeding an internal combustion engine. You're still feeding that that market, but you're not creating kind of new ones over and over again.
1: You could call it catch and release, right? Uh, we are going to catch the CO2 that comes out of the tailpipe when they burn it with these machines that are all over the world. We're going to turn it back into into basically gasoline, feed it back in, and just keep that loop going. So that the idea is we we can keep <laughs> on using all these all these trucks and all these planes and cars that have internal combustion engines, but we would actually have net zero emissions or, or as low as possible emissions. It, it definitely has one benefit in that you would be able to say, okay, we don't need the entire world to switch over to electric vehicles. But again, you know, it's like one of these leaps of faith, like, okay, <laughs> you have to trust oil and gas companies that they really want this to happen, they intend this to happen, and they won't just sort of do the bare minimum while continuing to burn lots of oil and gas.
2: It's not just trusting oil and gas companies. There's also the hurdle of intergovernmental, maybe even global cooperation.
1: A lot of these big DAC schemes would sort of work if there were high levels of cooperation and coordination at the highest levels of government, right? If the highest levels of government really said this is just an absolute top agenda for us then you could kind of imagine it working in the same way that like in the second world war entire economies repurpose themselves around war production without that coordination this scheme just sounds kind of like a little bit of a rube goldberg machine right you know it, it feels like it feels just too too like this weird bank shot you're leaning back over the over the over the pool table trying to you know get this ball to go off that ball off that ball into the corner and if you miss one angle the whole thing doesn't work
2: You're describing a problem of global import that relies on tremendous scientific knowledge and a lot of political will um, that is likely to most, you know, devastatingly affect the poorest people. And gee, that sounds a lot like the um, crisis we are currently in with the coronavirus pandemic, and I have not seen a lot of examples that the globe can come together. Do you have any faith that this is
1: going anywhere? Here, The only faith I have is, I guess, the faith that comes from seeing things like solar succeed, right? Progress in decarbonization can happen... uh, you know, in in ways that it it isn't easy to spy up front. One of the reasons why solar got so good is governments gave some subsidies and that that took leadership and that was good. And then that incentivized a marketplace of solar creators to go, hey, you know, we can make money with this. And, you know, and once you get the market going, it, it can be quite affirming, it can be quite productive. I definitely feel gloomy all the time because of the lack of political urgency amongst the folks who run things. Um, but I also know that sometimes things can be working you know better than we imagine in different pockets of innovation and and marketplaces and policies but I I I don't hold out great hope I got to say. I mean like I feel like I feel like the certainly in the US the political classes are so insulated from what their voters actually want that the that the actual quite widespread desire for decarbonizing the economy rapidly isn't getting the purchase it should get. And I don't know what to do about that. Clive
2: Thompson, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Clive Thompson is a journalist and author of Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. And that is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. We're edited by Tori Bosch and Alison Benedict. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I want to recommend that you listen to Thursday's episode of What Next to understand what exactly Mark Meadows knew about what was going on on January 6th. What Next we will be back next week, and we'll be out for the next couple of weeks, but playing some of our favorite episodes of the year. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. With the Lucky Lands Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.